Well, this morning we're going to look at the book of Philemon. Philemon is the book that we're going to look at today as we consider um, Grace to a Runaway Slave is the title of our lesson. Let me give you the theme and the connection and, and read the, uh, the summary for this lesson out of our quarterly. It says this, the theme is Christian reconciliation models the cross of Christ. The connection is when Paul appealed to Philemon on behalf of the runaway slave Onesimus, he placed himself in the middle of their broken relationship. In order to make peace, he volunteered to pay Onesimus' debt. Through this action, Paul modeled Jesus Christ, who is the peacemaker before, between God and sinful humanity. By volunteering to pay our debt, Jesus reconciled us to God and to each other. The application is God calls us to live as his peacemakers who reflect the heart of the crucified Savior. And then let me read the summary because I thought it was kind of interesting. In his short letter to Philemon, which is only 25 verses long, Paul made an appeal for oneness and unity in Jesus Christ. He placed himself in the middle of a broken relationship between Philemon, a slave, uh, a slave master, and Onesimus, a runaway slave. Contained within this story of reconciliation, grace, and de-exaltation is the gospel itself. And as we explore the letter of Philemon, don't miss Paul's strategy for establishing Christian unity. A slave himself, Paul urged Philemon to consider love, not law, not duty, or not obligation. And that's what we want to look at this morning, and we want to consider that as we study it. So open your Bibles to that tiny little book of Philemon, right before the book of Hebrews. And we'll read through these 25 verses. And it says this, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to uh, Aphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always, making mention of you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you since I am such a person as Paul the aged, now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. I've sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart, whom I wish to keep with me, so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything, so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but out of your own free will. Perhaps, for, for perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? If then you regard me a partner, accept him as you would me. But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it, not to mention to you that you owe me even as your own self as well. Yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, since I know that you will do even more than what I say. At the same time, also prepare me a lodging, for I hope that through your prayers I 
will be given to you. Paphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark and, and uh, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So this is an interesting little book. It's not a book that we spend a lot of time in. It's a book that we, we generally understand. But um, what do we, one of the things that we want to do before we even get into this study is we want to talk a little bit about slavery period and the New Testament and slavery and come to grips with that because that, that can be really very troubling to people when you consider um, the idea of slavery and that in the, in the Bible, the fact of slavery is accepted. And here we have Philemon who was a slave and he ran away and then he got saved and Paul is telling him, go back to your master and continue to be a slave. And so people will look at that and a lot of times and they'll, they'll think, what in the world is going on and how do we reconcile um, those kinds of things with what the Bible talks about in other areas? And so we want to talk about that a little bit before we even um, get into um, this book so that we can just address that. I want to read a little bit from what the quarterly said. I thought that they handled it quite well and then we'll have a discussion about this. The quarterly says this about this idea. As we think about slavery, there's an elephant in the room we need to address, what first century slavery was and wasn't. It's tempting to read Paul's letter to Philemon in light of our own 21st century American context. For us, the word slavery triggers in our mind the evil of racial superiority, colonization, and the cotton fields of the South, as well as the bravery of Martin Luther King, uh, King Jr. and the Civil Rights Movement. Slavery's root of racism is not only a thing of the past, it's tragically very much alive and continues to grieve the heart of God and should grieve the church also. But slavery in the first century Roman Empire wasn't based upon skin color. The idea of racially profiling and racial reconciliation would have seemed strange to Paul. He reminded the Galatians, there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus in Galatians chapter 3. When Paul wrote his letter to Philemon, about two-thirds of the people in the Roman Empire were slaves. These men and women were enslaved in many ways and for many reasons. Shipwrecked sailors became slaves, prisoners of defeated cities became slaves, even celebrated war heroes became slaves, often forced into gladiator combat. Beyond that, anyone in the Roman Empire could voluntarily indenture himself to a master and become a slave. Some became enslaved to pay off debts or generate revenue. Highly educated slaves were often used as school teachers for small children in Roman families. Masters didn't always treat their slaves well, of course. Paul addressed this problem in, in his book to uh, the Ephesians in chapter 6. Slaves sometimes rebelled, organized uprisings, robbed, stole, and occasionally escaped. Paul instructed the Christians who were enslaved in Colossae to obey your human masters in everything. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but work wholeheartedly fearing the law, uh, fearing the Lord, excuse me. And we read that in Colossians, we see that in Titus, we also see that in Ephesians. So it's interesting that the Bible addresses slavery in the fact that what it says is that if you are a slave, you need to obey your masters, your human masters. It says that. There is no doubt about that. It actually says that in Ephesians. It says that in Colossians. It says, listen, if you're a slave, don't worry about it. Remain a slave. If you're a free person, don't worry about that. Remain a free person. What the New Testament was teaching and what Paul was teaching over and over again is the transformation of the inward person. And the transformation of the inward person then changes to transformations of everything outward. One of the things that we need to be careful about is that we don't, that we don't go and jump all of the steps and think that the Bible is talking about transformation of outward and the inward maybe will follow in one way or another. It is talking about transformation of the inward person first and foremost. It is talking about people becoming saved 
once people are saved, then their, their approach to life should shift and change a little bit. Okay? Was slavery a bad thing? Always, when another person is enslaved by somebody else, that's a bad thing. And yet, we read throughout the Bible that slavery was a fact, and that slavery, in all honesty, was used by God in some interesting ways. You look at the nation of Israel and how they were slaves in Egypt, and God used that to build a nation. Okay, He used that, that thing in order to build a nation and in order to take those people so that they could escape and they could become a nation of their own. We see in the Roman Empire, indeed, as this said, that slavery was incredibly common. And if, if slavery would all of a sudden have stopped in the Roman Empire, the entire economy would have fallen apart. It would have been a disastrous thing. So we understand that, that God has used those things. Does that make slavery right? Absolutely not. Okay, Slavery is never right. It is never right to enslave another person. It is never right to do that. But the interesting thing about Christianity is Christianity is not, in the New Testament, it is not, you will not find it, Christianity is not a society-oriented activity whereby we change society. Okay? It is not that. That is not what Christianity is in the New Testament. It is fascinating, is it not, that in the New Testament... Paul, in the time he was writing, he never once said to the Christians, you guys ought to rally a, a, a rally against that government that you're under. You ought to go and protest. You ought to revolt. You ought to raise up and throw the Roman Empire out, and you need to be your own thing because that's an evil government. It is interesting in the New Testament they never said to the slaves, gather together and rebel against everybody and make sure that you are free and you become what you ought to become. The New Testament was never about that. The New Testament is about changing lives on the inside, changing our attitude, changing our approach, and then living within the society where we live in a God-honoring way, representing Him, and not, not rebelling against and doing everything we can to make society equitable to everybody involved. The New Testament doesn't talk about that. The New Testament talks about you becoming a different person who then responds to God in the way that you're supposed to respond to God. And the way he does that, in all honesty, is he says, in the society where you are at, honor those that are in authority over you, whether it be a master or whether it be a governor. Honor those in society who are above you, and that's how you're going to honor me, and that's what you're going to do. Now, slavery that we understand in the, in, in how we understand it with our American past, was slavery done away with here and in Europe and in England? It was, and one of the reasons it was, was because Christians stood up against it. And Christians said, we need to stop this. We need to not have this any longer. We need to do something different. Okay? And, and indeed, slavery was abolished because of that, because of the influence of Christianity. I am not suggesting to you that Christianity does not influence and change societies. It does. But here's what I want to make sure you understand. Christianity, influence and change in societies, is a secondary aspect of what Christianity is about. Okay? And when we take Christianity influencing and changing a society and make it the primary aspect of what Christianity is about, we are misunderstanding the Bible. It is not. Jesus Christ did not do that. He did not come to do that. Paul didn't do that. 
They said, I want to change you as an individual. I want you to have a different approach to life. I want you to have a different heart. I want you to respect the authorities. I want you to be this person. And by being this person, you're going to have an influence in your society and you're going to be able to change it. But we have to do it in the right order or we're missing the point of the Bible. Okay? And so God says, and here's the important thing, God says that when you get saved, what you need to do then is you need to live your life in the circumstances you are under right now as a saved individual. That's what you need to do. That is a hard pill for us to swallow because we're Americans. And the way we think as Americans is, I will change what I want to change, when I want to change, how I want to change for how I want it. Okay? You need to understand that 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 way of thinking that I just laid on you is a brand new way of thinking to everybody in the world. And still, many people in the world can't even con- can't have any, don't even have a concept of that way of thinking. We as Americans have had that for the last 200 years. Beyond that, that it was unheard of that you would think that way. What you would think is, this is my lot in life. This is who I am. Now the question as a believer is, how do I live in that circumstance right now? What do I do? What do I need to do in order to live for Jesus Christ and bring Him to glory? And and as people thought that way, Christians were different because they were concerned about the glory of God. As we think as Americans, we're not different all the time because we're not concerned about the glory of God nearly as much as we're concerned about changing our circumstances. We're circumstance-driven in this country about, let me change my circumstance. Let me make things better for me. And what we need to understand, and we, re- and we understand that even by a book in Philemon, for instance, is that it may be that God wants to use your circumstances to transform you, not your circumstances. And so as Americans, we need to start thinking differently. We really do need to think that God is not necessarily all about transforming my circumstances. I can guarantee you, though, that God is about transforming you. Okay? And if we would start thinking more about how can I glorify God and how can I be transformed, our circumstances would be less of an issue. But we reverse it all the time, and part of it is our American way of thinking. We, we think that way because we can, because that's the way we've been taught. Of course I'm going to change my circumstances. I can, and so I will. Okay. And all along, God may be saying, I was going to use that thing in your life. I, I, was, going to, I was going to do that. Okay, and that's kind of what we get when we come to slavery. Okay, does God think that slavery is a good idea? The answer is no. God, God never would have liked slavery. Never, never. God's all about people being free, but God is far more about you being free what spiritually than He is about you being free physically. Far more, far more. Okay, God says throughout the New Testament, as you read the New Testament over and over again, it is all about now that you're saved. How are you going to deal with your set of circumstances in your life? Okay, what are you going to do? All right, and it, it as I said earlier, and the great example that I use over and over again is Paul in his letters of telling us that you should you should submit to the authorities, and we hate that in the United States of America. We hate that phrase. We hate that verse. We hate when we have a study like that. I want you to understand that when Paul wrote those, he wrote those while the Roman Empire was in charge. This is a cakewalk life compared to what they had. And he said to them, respect, obey, pray for your authorities. We in America, in the United States of America, we, we say, what, are you kidding me? I'm going to let an authority that I don't like tell me what to do? Seriously? 
And God says, you're missing an opportunity here. You're missing an opportunity of understanding how I can transform you. You. Okay? And it was, and it was amazing that Paul did that. The words that you read in the Bible, you need to read those words in the Bible and, and, and you need to think about when Paul wrote those words exactly what was going on. Okay? I have said this over and over again. You have heard me say this. You understand this. You know that this is true. Stop thinking like a citizen of the United States of America and start thinking like a citizen of the kingdom of God. That's how we need to think. Okay? And when we think that way, things are different. Okay? Things are different. Can God transform a society? And the answer is yes. How does God transform a society? By transforming lives. And when those lives are transformed, and when those lives are living the way they're supposed to be living, God can transform a society. Okay? We need to make sure that that, that is the case. All right? Is there a time and a place for us to do all sorts of what we would call social stuff? Absolutely there is. Make sure you're doing it for the right reason, in the right order, at the right time, for the right reason. Okay? It's incredibly important that that happen. Okay? But we need to make sure that that is the case. All right, that that's what we need to do. Okay, uh, and 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 even after saying that, I will say to you over and over again, God is far more concerned. The Bible bears this out. I'll, I believe this with all of my fiber of being. Every uh, there's just no doubt in my mind that the Bible teaches that God is far more concerned about who you are than the circumstances that you're dealing with right now. Okay, does that mean He doesn't care? No, the Bible says He cares a great deal. But he has equipped you to deal with your circumstances in ways you can't even imagine. And one of the reasons that I say that is because we as Americas, Americans don't allow God to change us within our circumstances very often. We change our circumstances. Okay, We don't give God the chance to work sometimes. God wants to work on you. God wants to make you different. Okay. And there are times when people come to me and they'll talk to me and, you know, we'll use a work situation. And this is bad and that is bad and this is horrible. And my boss is a, a tyrannical, horrible idiot. And the people I work with are the stupidest folks you'll ever want to meet in your whole life. And on and on and on and on. And the answer to that may be, yeah, I'm sure you're right. What do you think God wants you to do with that? And in part, God wants you to learn how to deal with stupid, dumb people. We'd be better off if we learned that lesson, wouldn't we? I'm not supposed to use those words. I'm sorry. <laughs> Kids aren't in here, though, so it's all right, right? <laughs> anyway, but that's the deal, and that's what we need to understand. And so you need to get that. So Paul was not addressing the parliament. Paul was not addressing the leadership of the Roman Empire. Paul was addressing a slave owner, and this letter is written to churches. And so what we want to learn in this letter is that, look, God wants to use life to change you. Okay? That's what we're learning here. Alright? So that's the reason why that he just didn't say, uh, you know, we need to abolish slavery and we need to get rid of it. That was not his intent. That was never the intent of the gospel. Okay? And, and, and then I'm going to go one more step and then we'll move on. Okay? God does want to have a perfect life. God does want to have an equitable situation. God does want to have a world that has no problems and no issues whatsoever. Does he not? And where's that world found? In heaven. And it's there. And people say that all the time. Well, you know, it, it would be nice if it was this or this or this or this. Well, good news, it's been created. And if you believe in Jesus Christ, you're going to be in that world. Okay? 
this world was never designed to be that way. And because if this world was designed to be that way, the God we worship has zero power, apparently. Because this world is not that way. This world was not designed to be that way. Once sin came into being, once sin affected every aspect of life, this world was never designed to be perfect. This was never going to be the way it was going to be. This life was never going to have these. They're never going to go away. Because we live in this world. And this world is dominated by sinful people. And so we have these issues over and over again. So is there a perfect world? You betcha. And it will be a great place. And God has designed it, and it is your home as a believer and a follower of Jesus Christ. So hang in there and allow Him to transform you in this broken world as He works on you and grows you and as you live. And then one day He says, you did, you did good. Come on up to the really good world now. Okay? That's what life is, boils down to. Okay? Make sense? I hope you understand that and, 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 and get that. So let's, let's look at this. Let's move on here a little bit. And, um, and, and let's talk about what happened in this letter. The first handful of verses are all about uh, a summary of Paul saying that I know you and, and you are doing what you ought to be doing in verses 4, 5, 6, and 7. I thank God always when I mention uh, in my prayers for you, I hear of your love, the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus Christ and all the saints. I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing that is is in you for Christ Jesus. By uh, by the way, verse 6 is a verse that you need to cling to and cherish. Okay? We need to pray that our faith become effective through the knowledge of every good thing for Christ's sake. We need to pray that that's what it would be. By the knowledge we have, our faith becomes effective. And the knowledge I have is not better knowledge of how the United States of America works, but a better knowledge of how God works. That my faith would be effective. Okay. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. And so he's just talking about what a, what a tremendous great guy Philemon is. And he obviously was a believer who followed the Lord and loved the Lord. Then he gets to his point in verses 8 through 14. Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, because Paul understood that Philemon respected him and Paul understood he, who he was. He said, I could order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you and I want you to see what God wants you to do. Since I am such a person as Paul, the aged, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, of course he was, he was under arrest when he wrote this, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, who I have begotten in my imprisonment. And so what happened is that Onesimus came and got saved. Okay? So Onesimus, no doubt, when we read about this, was a, was a slave. He did belong to Philemon. Apparently, he ran away. And apparently, he stole or did some things before he left that were inappropriate. And then what happened was, he got saved. He met Paul and he got saved. And his life was changed completely. Okay, Because that's what happens when you get saved. And so Paul used some interesting words. He says, Onesimus, who I have begotten in my imprisonment, talking about the fact that, that he, is, he is one that has gotten saved recently. Paul could have said, Ones, or Philemon, I, I order you to do this. I order you to do this. I could have done that. Okay? But I'm not going to do that, but I want you to tell the story here. Okay? And we, we read in the, the quarterly says, through the conversion power of the gospel, a person who had previously been useless 
had become useful, now living up to his name, Onesimus, which means useful in Greek. And so he says that, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. I want you to understand how Paul looked at life. Paul looked at life through spiritual lens on a regular basis. And notice what he said. This fella, although he was a slave and he belonged to you, this fella was useless to you because he was just another person who was a part of your life. But now that he is a believer, this fella is useful to you and he's useful to me. And what Paul does, and it's something we struggle with on a regular basis, what Paul does is he separates very clearly and draws a definitive line between the unsaved and the saved all the time. All the time. It's the saved that are useful. It's the saved in your life that are beneficial to you. Not the unsaved. The unsaved that are in your life, they may have a relationship with you and there may be things that are you know, going on with them, but they don't have the wisdom from God. They don't, they're not on the same page as you. They don't think the same as you. They're not going to give you the, the proper advice that's from God than a saved person is going to do. But a saved person is useful to you. And Paul is constantly drawing the line and saying, you need to understand the difference between saved people and unsaved people. And that's a line that we have muddled in our world today. Okay? We have taken this thing and, and, and we have church. And then we have life. And it ought to be that it's, it's, our life is in the church, which means that, and not just this local church, but the universal church, which means that it's the believers that I know. They're the ones that I'm pouring into. They're the ones that I'm allowing to pour into me. They're the ones that I'm going to when I'm weeping. They're the ones that I'm going to when I'm rejoicing. They're the ones that I'm going to when I need some advice and some wisdom. It's the believers in life. And, and a lot of people will say, well, you know, Kent, one of the reasons that I don't, I don't do that is because there's been times in my life when those believers, you know, they, they haven't been very nice to me. The believers haven't accepted me very well. Them unbelievers, they, they accept me all the time. And we need to understand that when we make statements like that, what we're saying is that there was a time in my life when a believer said, listen, I love you, you're a brother or sister in the Lord, and I want to tell you you're wrong. Because the Bible says you're wrong. Of course unbelievers accept us without hesitation. There's no morals. There's no standard. Of course they do. Absolutely they do. You know, it's one of the things that drives me nuts in our world about that right now. We have a segment of our society that is so proud of the fact that I'm accepted unconditionally with these people. Okay? Well, yeah. Un, un, immoral people accept other people immorally who are immoral without any conditions. Of course they do. As believers, we have morals. We have standards. And as as brothers and sisters, and this is something else that, that is incredibly important that you need to understand, is that I have no right ever to condemn an unbeliever for their behavior. Because unbelievers behave the way they believe they behave because they're unbelievers. But I have a duty and responsibility to challenge believers concerning their behavior. And as soon as we cross that line, believers oftentimes say, well, I don't want anything to do with you. I wasn't accepted by that person. No, because somebody told you the truth. Somebody challenged you with biblical truth and what you said was, I don't want to live that way, I don't care. See, believers are useful because God has put them in our lives that, that they may grow us and challenge us 
and take those rough edges off. And every once in a while, God has put other believers in our life so that they could slap us upside the head and say, what are you thinking? You're wrong. Don't do that. You can't live that way. You can't act that way. And we need people in our lives like that. And Paul says that the description for people like that is that they're useful because they're on the same page as we are. So he said that this fellow was now useful. And he said that, uh, that, that he, was, he was a useful person. And he said he got saved and he was useless to you, but now he is useful to both of us. And then we read verse 12. I have sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart. And so here we, we read this fascinating thing that here is a slave who has run away and Paul says, you're a slave and you ran away and you need to go back. You need to go back. Can you imagine that? I mean, that's, we can't even fathom that, can we, because of our view of slavery and, and all of that. And said, you need to go back. You need to do that. Paul said this in verse 13, I, I wish to keep him with me that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. In other words, I recognize that he he does belong to you, and if I kept him, it would kind of be like you are ministering to me through him, and I want to keep him because he's so useful to me, and I would love for him to minister to me, but I'm not willing to do that because of what it says in verse 14. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. And so it goes back to the idea that Paul said, I could, I could do this and I could insist and I know that you would do it, but I'm not going to do that. I am not going to do that. Okay? And so the, the issue here that is important, and our quarterly says this, and I want to read it because I think they did a good job. Like Philemon, love is to be our motivation for obeying God in all things. We can easily fall in the trap of obeying God primarily out of obligation. Paul said, I want you to do the right thing by your own free will. I want you to obey God because you love God. We obey because, we obey because, uh, excuse me, we can easily fall in the trap of obeying God primarily out of obligation. We obey because we have to. We know we should. While this is certainly true, God has given us commands, not suggestions in scriptures. Obligation can be what prompts obedience. Love must be that thing that drives us. I love God. And so I want to do this. I love God. And even when you're doing what you need to be doing because you know it's what you need to be doing at the end of the time when you come to grips that I'm going to do what I know I need to be doing, you need to add to it. And I'm doing what I need. I know I need to be doing because I do love God. We need to include that in our whole mindset. I am doing what I'm doing because I love God. I'm not doing what I'm doing because I'm afraid. I'm not doing what I'm doing because I think that there's something a little magically happened. I'm doing what I'm doing because I love God and I truly do love God and I want to do what is right by Him. And I love Him. Jesus said, if you love me, you keep my commandments. Love fuels obedience. Obedience verifies love. A steady diet of love fattens obedience. But obligation will starve it at some point. I think that was a great little phrase. That indeed, if you do things out of obligation, pretty soon you won't want to do it anymore. But if you do things out of love on a regular basis, it'll watch, it'll create this thing in you that you'll want to do it again because you love. And this is why Jesus put the two together. Our love for God produces obedience that pleases Him and also brings Him glory around us when we joyfully obey. And Paul said to, to, to Philemon, I want you to do this, but I want you to do it in the right way. I want you to, I want you to do this. Because you love God. Okay? I want you to do what you do because you love God. That's what we all want 
from our kids. That's what we should want for ourselves and our spouses and for the people we love and know. We want them to do the right thing because of love. Because of love. And again, I'm a person that talks about the fact you ought to do what you ought to do because it's the right thing to do. I, and, I, and I talk about that quite a bit. And I'm going to hold to that. But at the end of that, I'm doing what I ought to do because I love God. And, and as, I, as I add that to my reasoning, it's going to help me love God. And it's going to help me to do what I ought to do then. Okay? So Paul says, I don't, want to, I don't want to make you do this. I want you to do the right thing. But notice what he does in verses 15 through 17. For perhaps he was here for this reason, separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So the beginning of verse 15, what is the phrase that some other Bibles mentioned that are in this room? The New American Standards begins verse 15 by saying, for perhaps. What are some other phrases that are used in verse 15? Is there any other? What? Okay, it seems you lost Onesimus for a little while. That's going to be the New Living Translation. Is it? Yep. Anything else? Any other phrase? Okay. For perhaps, the idea here is, did this happen by accident? Did this happen by accident? We need to be a little firmer on that one. Did this happen by accident? <laughs> no. Because God's involved. Okay? So the idea here that is being talked about is, is providence. A word we use a lot. Providence. God's providence. What exactly does providence mean? How is it that providence pays a part in our life? And let me, let me talk about this a little bit. Divine providence is the, is the way that God governs by which He, with wisdom and care, directs all things in the universe. The doctrine of divine providence asserts that God is in complete control of all things. He's sovereign over the, sovereign over the universe as a whole. He's sovereign over the physical world, the affairs of nations, over human destiny, human successes and failures, and the protection of His people. This doctrine stands in direct opposition to the idea that the universe is governed by chance or even by fate. It's God that is involved. Through divine providence, God accomplishes His will. To ensure, that his, to ensure that His purposes are fulfilled, God governs the affairs of men and works through the natural order of things. The laws of nature are nothing more than God's work in the universe. We talk about that a lot. The laws of nature have no inherent power. Rather, they are the principles that God uses to play, set in place to govern how things normally work. God's providence is, is that God controls things. Let's talk about uh, the the... the Great big example of that in the Bible, and that would be the story of Joseph in Genesis. Okay? So, Joseph and his brothers were doing their thing, right? And, and, and what we have, the first thing that we read about Joseph and his brothers is what? Between, the relationship between them, what do we learn about that? Is it what? His brothers what? They didn't like him, okay? Now, is that a, a, a right thing or a wrong thing with God? Wrong. Okay, let's understand that. Next thing we read about is that he comes out and because they didn't like him, they find him and, and the Bible says there's some jealousy. And so what they decide to do is that they are going to, they're going to get rid of him one way or another. And eventually they decide to sell him, okay? They weren't going to kill him. Maybe they were, maybe they weren't. And then eventually they decide to sell him, right? And so a group comes by and they sell him. 
Okay? Right thing or wrong thing? Okay? They sell him. They send him on down to Egypt, right? And, and in Egypt then, there's another transfer that takes place. Now he's in Potiphar's house. And now we see that he is a servant or a slave is the better word. He's a slave in Potiphar's house. Okay? And we see then is that Joseph is what kind of a slave? A really good slave. He obeys God, right? It's not his circumstances that he's concerned about. It's God. And so he does the right thing over and over again. And we see that because he does the right thing over and over again, what happens? He gets thrown in jail because he does the right thing. Because he stands up and refuses to do something that is wrong with his master's wife. And so he gets thrown in jail. And then in jail, what kind of a a prisoner is he? He's a, he's a model prisoner. And again, he's not concerned about where he's at. He's concerned about who he is. And he wants to obey God. And he's doing the right thing over and over again. And because of that, some things happen. And eventually, he's taken out of jail. And he's elevated and put in a remarkable place of honor. And because of that, when his family then is suffering because of the famine, they come and Joseph is able to help them and able to bring the family into Egypt and take care of them. Okay, And the brothers are real concerned about things at one point in Genesis like 50, about the end of the book there. And they're real concerned and they're afraid that now that dad's gone, that he's going to take revenge on us. And Joseph sits them down and says, listen, you meant it for evil, true statement, right? But God meant it for good, look at what has happened. Okay? That's the great, great, wonderful example that we use in the Bible. If you're like me, and you probably are, The problem that you have with reading stories like that when we talk about God's providence is what? Is anybody brave enough to say it this morning? Yeah, but what? Yeah, but what? Okay, why didn't God just send him down to Egypt and and make him, you know, do that that way? Very good. Good one. What else? Anything else? Here's my big thing. You guys are cowards, I'm sure. Because I think you all believe this probably. Is that that's a Bible story. God doesn't work that way with me. Okay? He's making noise over there, I guess. <laughs> and the truth of the matter is, God does work that way with me. And God does work that way with you. That's an example for us to understand that God works. Okay? And what we learn from that story is what? Is that there are times when God does what? He uses bad things to come out good. And sometimes he puts his people in difficult circumstances so he can accomplish something far beyond what we can think right now. Sometimes God uses circumstances that are not pleasant at all so that good things will come about so that God will get the glory. Sometimes God puts people in spots where they are suffering and having some difficult things, even as a result of sin that other people were a part of, so that God can affect other people in some amazing ways. Here's the deal. You have no idea what God may be doing in your life right now. You have no idea. You have no idea. Because it hasn't been revealed yet. It's possible that that circumstance that you're in, is God is going to use that to accomplish some amazing things. And the question that Andy said was, why didn't God just bypass all that stuff and not use sin and not use evil and not use, you know, Joseph being a slayer? And why didn't he just do whatever he does and put him in power in Egypt? And the answer for that, by and large, is so that, and Paul talks about this in Corinthians, God will get the glory. So that people will look at those clay pots that are being used in remarkable ways and say, 
hmm, there must be a God involved here. Something must be going on that's different here. Providence. Providence. God directs the effects of this universe. How does he do it? I am clueless. And the fact to say he's God. Okay? God directs, directs the, 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 the universe and, and all of what goes on in the universe. And in fact, God uses you and God uses who you are and your personality and your choices to accomplish remarkable things for his glory. How does God do that? I am clueless. Except to say he's God. Okay? Except to say he does it. And if you look back on your life, you may not have a story as dramatic as Joseph, but I bet you have a story that's in the neighborhood. And you can say, oh, look what God did. Look what God did. Okay, look what God did. One of the samples, I've used this over and over again. It's a simple one. It's an easy one, but I'll use it. I've used it. You guys have heard my testimony in the different times I've told my story that after I got saved, I drifted back in to playing basketball with just whoever I wanted to play basketball with throughout Denver, a friend and I who was an unsaved friend, so mistake number one, right? And he was an unsaved friend, and we were getting pretty close again, and we would just go play pick-up ball because that's what we did before I was saved, and so we just played pick-up ball, and as I was drifting and playing pick-up ball, I was getting in with people that maybe weren't the best people in the world because that's kind of the world I was in, and all of a sudden I was playing basketball, and I came down wrong, and I pulled my ligaments, and I was in a cast the rest of the summer. Now, was I happy about that? I was a high schooler. Of course I wasn't. Okay? But as I look at my life and look backwards, what do I see? That God kept me off a path. And God put me on a different path. Okay? Providence. Absolutely. And we look at those things and we can see those things in life. Now, does that mean that every single time somebody does that, we can look at and we can trace that back? No, it does not necessarily mean that. Okay, I don't want you to think that. But I want you to understand that God does use things in our lives that we would rather not have sometimes for His glory. Okay? That's what I want you to understand. Not every single time, not every person that pulls their ligaments or breaks their leg is God teaching in a remarkable, amazing lesson. Okay? There's an opportunity to learn some things there, but that's not, God may not be keeping them on a, off the path necessarily. He might, He might not. Okay? We need to evaluate every single situation in that. Okay? Does that make sense? I don't want you to go crazy with this. But I want you to understand that God is doing things and God's providence is big. In other words, God is at work. The world that you live in is not an accident. The events that are going on are not just happenstance. God is at work. Okay? And we need to believe that God is big enough to be doing that. And that's part of our problem sometimes. Our God is too small. Yes, ma'am. Yep. Exactly right. He is. And that's the neat thing. God's dealing with us. That's exactly right. And then there's all these other interesting things. The Bible says in verse 15, for perhaps he was for this reason. Another great phrase like that is found in the book of, of Ruth. What's the phrase in the book of Ruth? For such a time as this. That's exactly right. Perhaps I'm here for such a time as this. That's exactly right. God may be using me. Maybe it's for such a time as this. For perhaps God did this. It could be that God was doing this. And I really kind of like the way that Paul did it. For perhaps. Maybe God was doing this. Maybe God was working this out. And, and all of these came to pass. We never want to, we never want to be, you know, and, 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 and demand and say this is exactly what God was doing because God is working in so many amazing ways. But we can look back every once in a while and say, ah, I do see. Look. Look what God was doing here. You know what a key to it is? Being willing to believe that God is at work and to let Him work. 
Okay? You gotta be willing to let God work. You gotta be willing to let God be God. Okay? And that's an important thing here. And Joseph's one of those examples where he was willing to allow God to be God. He continued to be who he should be in some pretty horrible circumstances. Okay? We need to move along here. We're going to run out of time. No longer, in verse 16, no longer a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me. How much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? And I want you to notice that all of a sudden he's a brother. He's not, he's not just a slave anymore. Now he's a brother and all things are different. Real quick, but if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge it to my account. Paul was willing to say, listen, if, if the issue is he did something wrong, I'll take care of it. And as I quarterly said, that is pointing out the picture of Christ and us. If he did anything wrong, I'll take care of it, Christ did. My blood will cover that. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repair it, repay it. And then Paul did say, by the way, I think you owe me a little bit also. But I'll pay you back if that's the case. Yes, brother, let me benefit from you and the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you since I know that you will do even more than what I say is that you're going to do this and you're going to be this kind of a person. But I'm going to stand in the gap and I'm going to, I'm going to take care of whatever needs to be taken care of. I want you to accept this person. Couple other things here. Obviously, what is included in this book that is incredibly important? What, what's, what's being taught in this book? A couple other awesome character, or excuse me, doctrines that we need to embrace. What's being taught in this book? Forgiveness is a big one, isn't it? You've been wrong. That was never a question in this book, right? Take him back. Forgive. It's not talked about, but it's, it's all over the page of this thing, isn't it? It's all over it, okay? Accepting God's work in our lives. Understanding that God is working in ways that we can't possibly imagine. And then another one that is, is being taught about here is, is, is understanding that God is transforming me and not necessarily my circumstances. Okay? And in transforming me, my circumstances may change, but He's interested in transforming me first and foremost. That's what He wants to do, and that's what He was doing with, with, uh, Onesimus here. He was transforming him. He went back and was a slave. He was freed in Christ, but he was still a slave. And that's an amazing thing. All right? God really does want to work in life. And, and, and the way that God works is in this life, in this world. And there are too many times when we are too irked or angry or disappointed or discouraged about this world and this life to allow God and to see God's work. We need to have a different approach. We need to understand that God is working. I'm, am I disappointed? Yeah, I am incredibly disappointed. I'm devastated, maybe. I'm overwhelmed. But wait a sec. God's at work. I need to trust God. And it's going to grow my faith, and that's going to help me a little bit, and, and, and it's, going to, it's, it's going to be a good thing in my life. I'm not saying that, that, that as Christians we're robots and we don't have those feelings. I understand we have those feelings. But God, wait a sec. Wait, now, now I need to turn to God. And I need to rest in Him. Last comment. we got to go. Yeah, kind of. Version 2 of the prodigal son. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, a little bit. And the prodigal son's a great example of this whole thing, obviously. Absolutely. And we're seeing Christ in this, right? Prodigal son and Philemon. We're seeing Christ. I mean, that's the big picture over and over again. I want to leave you with this. Perhaps, perhaps God's using that in your life right now. Perhaps God wants to do some things in you right now. 
And this I know for sure, is that no matter what your circumstances are, God wants to grow you and use you in your circumstances. God wants to transform you. They may be so overwhelming that you can hardly think. But I believe that God still wants to transform you and your circumstances. And God wants to do a great work in you. And that could be an incredibly long process, but God wants to do that. God wants to do that. And then remember and understand that the reason why we have these kinds of things is because we live in a sinful world, but this is not our permanent home. There's a better day coming, and it's going to be a really glorious day. Father, thanks for our time together this morning, and I just pray that you would use this class and that you would use the things that need to be used and that you would um, grow us with your wisdom and your truth, and that, Father, that um, we would understand the importance of resting in you and that we would understand um, how important it is to to realize that you are at work constantly and that um, you would grow us, that we would rest in the providence of God and that we would we would just enjoy knowing that you are God. Father, we just thank you for the lesson. Use these things to your glory in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.